Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's not every day you get a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on at a major pharmaceutical company, especially one that is working flat out to produce its COVID-19 vaccine. But Global News has done just that. In a report that you can find on globalnews.ca, Carolyn Jarvis, chief investigative correspondent, has kind of peeked behind the curtain at Moderna, and she joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Simi. So what did you get to see? What was this like? Oh, it was a a surreal experience. Uh, We went inside Moderna's headquarters in Cambridge and to its production plant, which is in the community of Norwood, about half an hour south of Cambridge and Boston. And we had to look at how they're putting their vaccines together, the mRNA process, how they are readying boosters, how they're tracking variants, and how they're revving on a heck of a lot of adrenaline and not a lot of sleep as they're racing to get ahead of this virus. That must be incredibly stressful. Did you get a sense of that kind of anxiety when you got there? You know, yeah, there was anxiety. There was a lot of excitement, too. There was a lot of pride. Gosh, I have to say that it's not often that I go into a corporate headquarters where you see as many employees as I did wearing uh, the corporate swag. Everybody's wearing Moderna T-shirts and hats, and they had, you know, files and resin on their desktops. People were very clearly proud of what they were doing and the mission they were behind, which is, you know, a nice thing. It's, gosh, they're trying to cure a pandemic. It's rather important. Uh, but you can definitely tell that it's a company growing by the second. feels very much like you're in a Silicon Valley headquarters, a lot of glass and light and wingback chairs. They call it a campus with neighborhoods like they might at a Google headquarters, for example. Uh, very avant-garde, you know, huge free lunches, big cafeteria, and people that definitely felt like they were on a mission. How much has that campus or that company scaled up during COVID-19? Oh, they're scaling by the second. Uh, Literally, you know, the senior vice president of manufacturing had to whisk out of our interview with him because he said, I've got to go try to recruit somebody. You know, in the last six months, they've hired 500 people. They're trying to hire 500 more every day. I get another alert saying, you know, they're expanding to this place. They're having mRNA made in that location. The demand is seemingly insatiable. And so this company just keeps growing. Yeah. And what did you learn about what they're working on uh, for COVID-19? Like, I understand they're working on some boosters. Oh, my gosh, they've got six different boosters in development, one targeting the Delta variant, another targeting the Beta variant. That's the one that first uh, was discovered in South Africa that was greatly concerning at the time because there was concern it could escape our vaccine's effectiveness more. So they have what's called multivalent vaccines. These are boosters that combine different vaccine formulations in a bid to stay ahead of the virus. So the original strain combined with a bit of Delta so that it could target both of those strains at once. They even have a COVID-19 booster combined with a flu shot that it thinks some people may want to take every year. Wow. What did you find most fascinating about this, Carolyn? 
got, there's so many aspects to it. Really, the way that Moderna is expanding even beyond COVID-19, that they treat the mRNA technology as a platform. And so they're dealing in five different therapeutic areas and vaccines uh, with respect to COVID are just one uh, pillar of their development areas. They're looking at cancer treatments that could target specific types of cancer personalized to the individual with cancer. And if we look at how the COVID-19, the mRNA technology has has relayed to COVID, and, and we can relate that to other therapeutic areas, there's a lot of potential with this technology. And so, uh, I mean, that is very promising for the scientific community. So it doesn't sound like anything is slowing down at a company like Moderna at all. No, no. There literally is not a lot of sleep. We talked about that a lot, that people are, um, people are really revved up about what they're doing here and they need, I mean, there was recruitment pamphlets on the lunch tables. You know, recruit your friend, get a hundred, get a thousand dollars. We'll pay for relocation fees. They need more people. They're growing fast. Wow. Okay. And when you got to see the whole vaccine manufacturing process, right? A lot of it uh, we could see because it's showcased between walls of glass because these are referred to as GMP, so human-grade protected manufacturing areas. We couldn't step into the exact line, but it was right in front of us, like a couple meters away from us. And Scott Nickerson, the senior vice president of manufacturing, very graciously took us on a very extended tour of the entire manufacturing line. So it was explained to us how they get a DNA sequence. It's put into its drug design studio. It all starts at a computer that looks almost like an Amazon ordering process. You click send, and then they use that DNA to transcribe it into mRNA, the messenger RNA that tells our body what to do with it. So all of this was detailed to us, and now they can make a vaccine from start to finish in as little as five days. The production line is, is, is very quick now. Oh, that is amazing. All right, I can't wait to read more about it. Carolyn, thank you pleasure. Thanks, Amy. It's Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Global News. Now, you can read this extensive piece that she has done in cooperation with a couple of other reporters at globalnews.ca. But they were the first Canadian news outlet to get an exclusive look behind the scenes of Moderna's vaccine-producing plant, how it all works, what is going on there, what they're working on, and it's a real eye-opener. So again, check it out at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a scene that we have seen play out time and time again in the United States. They're having trouble avoiding a federal shutdown. They've got budget issues. And once again yesterday, with just hours to spare, the U.S. Congress passed legislation to avoid a shutdown and to keep funding the government through to the beginning of November. This feels like deja vu, right? We've been here before. Don't they just like kick the problem down the road when they do something like this? So I thought, let's get this explained to us. Joining us now is our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, I'm having a sense of deja vu that we're talking to you about this. Uh, Yeah, look, we've talked about this a number of times. The last time back in 2018, when the government actually did shut down, Uh, this was linked to then-President Trump's request for money to build a border wall. It didn't sit well. They ultimately weren't able to get the funding for the government passed because that was tied to it, and it shut down for 35 days. Here we are now, a couple of years later. That was coming up again because of a Democratic request, this time again for money. Ultimately, things had to be decoupled. They had an 11th hour save, but they kicked the can down the road. And we will be having this conversation again about nine weeks from now. Okay, so what was the big holdup here? What's the problem? 
So what Democrats were trying to do is pass a government funding bill, and they tied to it a bill that would allow for the U.S. Treasury to borrow more money uh, above what the current debt ceiling is. And Republicans put their foot down and said, absolutely not. We are not going to let the country borrow more money. That's important because on October 18th, the United States is going to run out of money. They won't have the money to pay for the bills. Republicans say it simply just allows Democrats to kind of go on a spending spree. Democrats say, look, this pays for all of the trillions of dollars that were run up under Donald Trump. This is covering the bills that are coming in. Ultimately, they had to decouple them so that the government wouldn't shut down and the Biden administration would then have two cash crises on his hands. Right. Okay. This is just this is part of that whole big the the spending infrastructure bill, right? That that it, Joe Biden's trying to pass. So it's kind of linked and kind of not linked. The de- the Republicans say that the Democrats want to borrow more money so that they can pay for Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, but at the end of the day, the money was to pay for all of the tax cuts and spending that were done under Donald Trump, including COVID relief. Going forward, though, Republicans are also putting their foot down on the amount of money that the, that the president is trying to spend for uh, infrastructure and social policy plans, which total something like five trillion. There's a bipartisan package that's going through. There is a stumbling block here and that Democrats are actually going to try and stop Joe Biden from passing the infrastructure plan because they want more money to be spent. This is a whole fight in this country over money that they sort of don't have, but they really need to have because they really do risk going into a debt default on October 18th if they can't raise the debt ceiling. Right. And as you pointed out, this also happened you know, under President Trump as well, but it was the opposite. It was some members of his party who wanted to oppose it because they felt it was too much money. Yeah, look, this is Republicans every once in a while, they become fiscal hawks and they forget that they like to spend money when they're in power and when somebody else is in power, they don't want to spend money. The government shutdown uh, is kind of a threat that happens every year. The country has to operate on 12 appropriation bills. If they don't spend it, if they don't pass it, they just pass a continuing resolution and they kind of go with last year's spending and just extend that a little further. Happened under Trump, happened under Obama, it's happened under every president uh, and the government has shut down dozens of times because of that. The debt ceiling is a much more serious crisis uh, that would not cause a government shutdown. It would just simply cause a debt default. But what that could do is trigger a recession in the U.S. It could spike interest rates. Uh, it could also create a global financial crisis. So they averted the shutdown, but there is a much bigger problem that is kind of creeping around the corner. Right. And so they have averted it for now. But when was last one you mentioned was back in 2018. And I seem to remember that one lasted a while. Yeah, it lasted 35 days. It started uh, at the beginning of December. It lasted through Christmas. It went into January. It cost the economy $11 billion. Ultimately, they were able to get the money paid back to the people who were furloughed. They were able to restart uh, those social programs. So again, it's that was the longest that we've ever seen uh, in, in U.S. history. Uh, and it's again, it's something that happens every single year, this threat for a government shutdown, because the party in power often tries to tie additional funding to the bill to keep the government funded. Uh, it is just a kind of a convoluted and archaic way that the government operates. But like we saw yesterday, they were able to avert the shutdown. The problem is it's temporary. There is a risk for a shutdown again at the very beginning of December, and they will have to go through this all over again. And you called it, Reggie, archaic and convoluted. Is there no appetite to change this? Well, look, changing the, the way that kind of the bills are appropriated is a massive uh, undertaking in the United States to try and get all the funding for all of the agencies and all of the military dealt with uh, in one go. So they split it up over 12. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like raising and lowering the debt ceiling, how that's also an archaic and some people say unconstitutional way of working. There is an entire process that 
the Democrats said yesterday needs to be looked at when it comes to how the United States deals with money uh, to not leave the American people on the hook for potentially losing everything every time this comes up. But nobody wants to be the one to undertake that. So they kind of work on the way that things always have gone. And as we see, the way that things always have gone don't always go properly. That's so true. Reggie, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Nobody, and I mean nobody, likes to pay for parking. But all Vancouver residents who have a vehicle might soon be paying for it, even if your car is parked outside your house, no matter where you live in the city. A staff report to Vancouver City Council this week has recommended that these permit parking-only zones be implemented right across the city, everywhere. Let's talk about how and why this is happening, the good, the bad, the ugly of this process. Joining us is Gordon Price, a fellow with the SFU Centre for Dialogue, editor with Viewpoint Vancouver, and of course, former longtime Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Simi. Good morning. What do you think of this plan? Well, I think you said good, bad, and ugly. Uh, uh, let's see if we can think of the good part here. <laughs> well, yeah, the city will get some revenue that, that can be used for good things. But, you know, parking is one of those contested spaces. It's right up there with bike lanes. People are going to feel uh, pretty strongly about it. Yeah. See, I don't have a problem with that part of it. Like, cause there's a lot of stuff in this plan. So the prob- the thing about buying a permit to park your car on the vehicle, I know a lot of neighborhoods have to do that. So fine. But yep. let's talk about the other parts of this plan that I don't like as much. For instance, the city trying to tell me what kind of car to buy by taxing that vehicle more if they say that's a bad vehicle? Mm, we do that with all kinds of things. Uh, certainly uh, uh, pollution charges are, are not, quote, particularly new or inquire, uh, you know, requirements are, are imposed. But but this one, I think, yeah, it like, like the little parking itself, it, it looks as though it is selecting people who are used to getting something for, for free or at least not being charged and then, then punishing for them. So it it does create a lot of resentment. It's very politically difficult. I would be surprised, in fact, if this plan goes forward, certainly in the form that the staff have proposed. Yeah, maybe you could explain that process to us. And it's just a staff report right now. Is this like a trial balloon when it goes out to the public and people start talking about this? It seems to be more advanced. I think that's because it came out of the climate emergency uh, motion and response. Uh, In other words, here, we do have something that more than ever we can see has to be addressed. And, and so staff has really taken that uh, instruction, that permission, as it were, from council, and they really have come back with some tough stuff. Uh, the politicians ask them to do it, and, and they are uh, responding. So as a politician, how, do you, how did you balance those things in your time on council? Like, obviously, unpopular things come along, but sometimes they're still the right thing to do. That's right. And so you have to have the what, what the political capital or the political courage to do it. You may pay a price, but generally with these things after, and bike lanes are a good example, uh, after they go in and people see how they're being used or that they are being used and things settle down, if the worst doesn't happen, then, then you're good. Uh, and you may even get rewarded. Uh, but you have to have a political instinct from the beginning that if you're going to introduce something, uh, you've got to be pretty much prepared to support it. And I'm not sure that's happened in this case. Mm, what makes you say that? Well, well, we'll see. I, I, I may be wrong on this. They may well be prepared. Um, Sandy, Sandy James, my, my co-editor in Viewpoint Vancouver, thinks it's going to pass. I don't think it will. 
might be wrong on this one. It could be that the motivation to respond to a, well, climate emergency by doing at least something tangible, something the individual, in a sense, can do. Yeah, if you're going to buy a more polluting car, a non-electric one, then be expected to pay some more. Right. One of the other aspects was um, overnight parking. Guests in your guests who come to stay overnight at your house being charged to park overnight on the street. How do you, Gordon, even enforce something like that? Uh, very often you don't. I mean, you, you basically do do require most of it, you, you assume, if you make it easy enough. If it is part of a social norm, it, it kind of is mostly self-enforced. And then, yes, you do have people who go out there and whose job it is to do that enforcement. The technology, I think, will allow it. But, you know, I do think it's the the hassle of having to do it in the first place it really is more problematic than the charge itself. Right. So is this the right approach then? Like if in this day and age, trying to fight climate change at the municipal level, what should those governments be looking at? Oh, my gosh. Well, we're all in on this one. So uh, basically, the big things are transportation, heating, you know, basically the the uh, the energy the buildings require, uh, the building of the buildings, all of that. That's the sort of thing that is within the city's jurisdiction. So I, I don't actually have a problem with them taking on this issue around parking. I just think that the way that this particular proposal has come along is premature. And, hey, I live in a zone, one of the first, maybe one of the first in Canada, that introduced street parking, and that was in the West End. And for good reason. We didn't have a lot, and it was being used by commuters. So it was it was uh, something the neighborhood actually asked for, wanted, because we got the advantage. Yes, we paid not a lot, but as a consequence, hey, that very valuable space became primarily for West Enders. The, we we do it with parking meters. Those go back to the 30s. I mean, this is the idea of charging for street parking is not unusual, but n- normally the neighborhoods affected have to see the advantage. And I think that would have still been the best way to pursue this. We will charge you, it's true, but you get an advantage or more directly say the revenues will be used for benefits in in the community. We've done that with other things. So you let other neighborhoods who want it bring it in and then it becomes a new norm. People get used to it. You try out the technology, you work out the bugs. And then, you know, a few years later, you apply it across the city. We do that with zoning. We do it with a lot of things, but you do it incrementally. See, now that sounds reasonable, the way, the way that you just put it there. But that doesn't... I wouldn't be too surprised, in fact, if that's what council does. Really? So you think they might dial it back and say, okay, we're going to gradually phase this in? I think they're at the phase now of listening to us and saying, what's the, what's the community mood out there? What political price will I have to pay? How close am I to an election? What issue am I giving to my opposition? And yeah, I do think there are ways of moving forward with this incrementally. Uh, You said, I think, that you acknowledge the need for some kind of response. Mm -hmm. So let's find that balance. You know, the overnight, not the overnight parking, but the like permit parking, as you were saying, started in the West End. I don't have a problem with that in my neighborhood. Sure. Okay. Because there are neighborhoods where that has to happen. But you're right. I think neighbors, we have to see the benefit of that. And do you think they have made that argument to people well? Hmm. Don't know really the answer to that. I, I mean, this. <laughs> I've been out of uh, politics for a few years now, so I'm going by perceptions that I had back in the '80s and '90s. Well, it was a long time ago, <laughs> wasn't it? So, uh, yeah, the, the mood may have changed. My my hunch is though that it's better to, as we did say, with mm, secondary suites and lane cottages. 
go to the neighborhoods that want it first. And then a few years later, it becomes citywide. So you've got to have that interim step, that more incremental approach. They may decide it's just time to bite the bullet on this. We might as well take the hit and we'll do it all at once and get it over with. Right. But next year is an election year, as you pointed That's out. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's a little close, yeah. you know, within memory. And and you're going to have to roll it out, which means technology. And you're going to have, <laughs> gee, have we had any experience with that recently? You yeah. Know, uh, so long as it works seamlessly and, you know, the cost isn't too high. But, boy, those are big ifs. And I do think they'd be taking a risk doing it just prior to an election. Oh, I think you're so right on that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Anytime, Sammy. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it's Gordon Price, fellow with the SFU Center for Dialogue and editor with Viewpoint Vancouver. Of course, also longtime Vancouver City Councillor. I am going to be very interested to see how this whole parking program, this this recommendation from staff works out here in the city of Vancouver. We'll see if it actually goes through. We'll continue to follow that story. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A year ago, we were very worried about, you know, influenza season didn't really materialize. It was a record low year for flu cases. This year, though, it's expected to be very different. We are socializing and gathering at a much higher rate, closer rate than we were a year ago. And there's lots of health officials who say they are worried about this year. So they are urging Canadians to get a flu shot. Joining us now is Dr. Gerald Evans, Professor of Medicine, Biomedical and Molecular Sciences and Pathology at Queen's University. Dr. Evans, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why do you think it's so important to get that flu shot this year? Well, I, I think, again, it relates to a little bit of uncertainty of, of how bad flu may be this year. And we're starting to get some suggestions that that uh, certainly uh, may be uh, back to either seasonal levels or even above seasonal levels uh, when we sort of hit this October to March uh, time when influenza rises. And that's been because even in some northern hemisphere countries in South Asia, particularly India, there has been a resurgence of flu. And that may be a little bit of a harbinger that, you know, this may be heading in our direction as well. And, you know, as you mentioned in the preamble, there is the whole fact that public health measures to some degree are a little bit less now than they were before. Uh, even in places like I live here in Ontario, where we still have mask mandates, etc. But but it's a little bit more social contact, a little bit less public health measures. And that really it w- would give flu a chance to really take off. Right. Like last year really was an anomaly, wasn't it? Uh, very much so. It was probably, it, well, we know it was record lows. We did not even reach the threshold where we could declare that flu season has started. So we have a sort of number of cases and then we say, okay, flu season started. We never even got to that threshold. Okay, so what kind of a difference could it make this year? Like you said, we've see, we're seeing some cases in India. Uh, do, does it look different from a year ago? Um, certainly, uh, the Southern Hemisphere looks the same as it did last year, but that's also because two of the big countries down there that we rely on for data, Australia and New Zealand, have actually maintained very strong public health measures, so not a good marker. And it's important to remember, India is um, essentially a Northern Hemisphere country, so that's an early start to the season. 
Um, and it does suggest that that may be a, a really a function of this reduction in public health measures uh, that are being seen uh, elsewhere. So um, it's really that kind of marker that we're looking at. But it's, flu can be very unpredictable. It may occur in one wave. It may occur in two waves. Um, and really the big issue is, is that influenza is an illness that resembles COVID-19 and, of course, can result in severe um, infection, severe disease, which requires hospitalization and ICU stay. And we don't need that in the middle of sort of trying to transition out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So who do you think should get the flu shot this year? Well, I, I certainly push that everybody should get the flu shot because flu, unlike COVID-19, can affect children significantly. And in fact, when you look at the most recent reports, influenza B, which is an infection um, that's, you know, it's a different virus than influenza A viruses, that actually affects children more frequently. And so even kids should get their flu shot. And we're very fortunate because the recommendations that have recently come out of NACI are saying that if you're uh, getting your flu shot, you can also get your COVID-19 vaccine at the same time. So there's no requirement to separate them by a period of time. So I really recommend everybody. But, you know, the groups that are most affected are older individuals, those with pre-existing sort of cardiac and pulmonary diseases. Um, they definitely should get their flu shot, but I really encourage it for everyone. Yeah, Are you concerned, though, that not everyone will heed the call because it feels like people are so in tuned into what's going on with the COVID vaccine? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think, uh, and right now, if you were to say, if someone were to say to me, look, I'm only going to take one vaccine, I would go for the COVID-19 vaccine. No question about it. The benefit of it is enormous. But really, you know, I think if you're willing to get one vaccine, which suggests that you're probably at least not worried too much about needles and things like that, which I see still, you know, present in lots of people, uh, then getting the flu shot's not a really big add-on. And of course, I'll get my flu shot this year for without question. Right. Is, it, is there usually a good take-up of the flu vaccine every year like I know we every year we campaign we hear it oh you go get your flu shot but it feels like a lot of people do take that up right yeah right now if you look sort of generally across the country um, it varies but it's probably somewhere around 40 percent of individuals will take it it's a little bit higher in people who work in healthcare. it is higher among seniors um, uh, to take the vaccine uh, but in some years where we're really worried about flu, and if you remember back to 2009 when we had the pandemic H1N1 flu, in fact, we had almost 80% uptake of that particular flu shot. Of course, people were very worried about the pandemic at that point. That's right. I do remember that. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Gerald Evans, a professor of medicine, biomedical and molecular sciences and pathology at Queen's University, uh, explaining why the flu shot is so important this year that they are worried about what could happen, right? We are in closer contact this year than we were a year ago. Flu kind of had a year off last year because of all the public health measures, and they are worried that it is going to come back with a vengeance this year. So yeah, we'll be hearing a lot more about that as we really ramp up and get into flu season. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday while I was at work, I bought an apple tree. And the reason why I bought an apple tree is because I was on the website for the UBC Apple Festival checking it out. And I thought, yeah, I want one of these. It's an amazing uh, festival. I love it every year. It is back. It is celebrating its 30th year. And we thought, well, we should talk about this because it's a great chance for you to get out and maybe try some new apples. Joining us is Pam Sinclair, volunteer at Friends of the Garden at UBC. Good morning, Pam. 
Good morning, Simi. What kind of apple tree did you buy? I bought the golden. Oh, hold on. Now I have to look. I bought, and I really, I had to, I had to really <laughs> study this because it was hard. Oh, I bought Hudson's Golden Gem Apple Tree. Ooh, that sounds interesting. I'm all about the baking, so I thought that would be a good one to, you know, bake with some of the apples off that tree. That's true. You'll have to wait a year or two, but there you go. <laughs> Thanks for that, Pam. <laughs> anyway, so tell me about the festival this year. Is it different from last year? Have you gone back it to the is- way it was before? Uh, we wish it was, but uh, COVID is still with us, and uh, we just had to make a plan ahead of time because we didn't know what was going to happen. So we are doing Apple Market, which is uh, order online, it drive by, we put it in your trunk or your back seat, you don't have to get out of your car, and uh, off you go. So you need to order your trees online at applefest.ca, or your apples, or your goodies, Um at our Apple store, we have apple juice and apple booklets, apple-themed jewelry, a T-shirt celebrating our 30th, which is kind of fun. It's a retro design, so that's kind of exciting. We wanted to celebrate the 30th with a big bang, but obviously we can't. Yeah, but you've got a lot of great stuff on that website. So tell me about the varieties of the apples that you have for sale. Well, we have 11 varieties. Um, We hope to have 15. Please check back daily if you, or every couple of days, if you don't see the type of apple um, we normally, or you would like to have. Um, The growers are picking as fast as they can and sending, getting them organized and sending them down to us. They're all, we receive all the apples bagged. They're all organic because we, because of COVID again, we normally bag I can't even imagine how many apples. We spend two days, three days bagging apples generally. We weigh them and bag them and then set them aside for, for uh, customers. So um, That's a lot. It is. Uh, we have 10,500 pounds this year. We've doubled it, or it's, it's doubled since last year. So that's the difference. We do have more, more varieties available, and we have definitely more apples. We'll probably receive about 600 customers through the parking lot in three days. That's pretty good. What kind of apples are selected for the festival? Oh, we have uh, Nicola, Pinata, Pink Lady, Braeburn, Honeycrisp, Ambrosia, Mutsu, Rubinette, Newton, Newton Pippin, and uh, Red Fuji and Red Rome are two new additions, so if you've been looking for them... Uh, please go back to the website. And if you have already ordered something and uh, your pickup time isn't available when you go back to order something else, we will consolidate them and put them in your first time slot. Oh, that's a pretty good one. So where do the different apples come from? Because that's what I love about, like often what the festival does for you is it kind of introduces you to apples that your local grocery store may not carry. Exactly. Um, Most of them come from the Okanagan. This year they're all from the Okanagan. But uh, in bigger times, we order them from the Fraser Valley, too. We have um, a big truck comes in from the the Fraser Valley, and then one from cold storage comes from uh, the Okanagan. What's your personal favorite, Pam? What what apple do you just love? I love Salish, which we don't have, which was a new uh, introduction in 2012. And Ambrosia, I'm very partial to. Um, and that was the chance seedling that was found in the Okanagan in 2014. And um, we've had great success with both of them, but um, everybody likes a different apple. I like crunchy, hard, and semi-sweet ones, and other people like more, more sour and um, 
not as crisp. True. And honey crisp is a very popular one as well. Goes by its name, and um, I love that. It, there's Thank Apple you. detectives out there, aren't there, Pam? Because like looking for new varieties of Apple is like an ongoing. It feels like uh, digging like mystery. There's a summer, the Summerland, and I don't remember the proper name. There's a Summerland um, development. You've caught me on off guard here. Um, development where they do develop the apples, and that's where the salish came from. Um, the ambrosia was just unique because it was a chance seedling in the middle of the orchard or on the edge of the orchard. Um, but this, uh, this Salish was called Spa 493. We called it Spa 493 for about three years before they named it. And um, several of the apples have come from there. And then a lot of them are, are ancient. The Braeburns brought it in, uh, introduced in New Zealand, and it needs a long, hot summer. Um, the Rubinette is a, a mid-season dessert apple. I think the intriguing part is summer dessert, summer eating, summer, you know, baking. And if you don't find the uh, kind of apple you want at Apple Fest, then you can, or in the market, you can come and buy a tree, and you'll be able to grow exactly what you want, which is what you've done. That is what I've done for that exact reason, because I found the varieties of trees were so great. How yeah. do you have that many varieties of trees? There's so many available. Well, these wonderful growers that we uh, have contact with in the in the lower Fraser Valley and, and um, close by, we have over 35 varieties of trees. And online you will find um, five pages of tree planting tips, instructions, how to plant them and the best places to plant them and what you can plant in a, um, what apple trees you can plant in a pot uh, versus in the ground, which is kind of nice for people with balconies or just a small space. Yeah. Are you expecting a lot of demand this year? We hope so. It's, we've sold out of some varieties already, and we've had to order more. So wow. That's pretty exciting. Okay. Um, so what but we can need- only handle so many. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what do people need to know? They need to know to go to applefestival.ca online. Uh, order bef- as soon as you can what you want or try something new. That's kind of fun. We do, it tells you what um, the apples can be used for. And uh, pick up your apples between October 15th and October 17th at the UBC Botanical Garden. So it's out at UBC. Um, You'll be given instructions by signage. You come along a lower marine drive into a parking lot, pick up your apples, and out upper marine drive. So it's um, it's pretty simple, and uh, hundreds of people found it last year, so we're hope, hoping another few hundred will find it this year. I'm already going to find it this year. Pam, thank you so much for that. Okay, thanks, Simi. Pam Sinclair is a volunteer at Friends of the Garden at UBC. They are, of course, putting on the UBC Apple Festival. It's 30th year. Honestly, if you've ever wanted a different kind of apple tree or a different kind of apple just to try it, this is your opportunity. The first time I ever had a honey crisp apple was 20 years ago at the UBC Apple Festival. And I've never forgotten how kind of revolutionary that was to taste this very different apple. They're popular now. 20 years ago, they were kind of brand new. So yeah, check them out online. Order your apples or your apple tree now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been a little over two weeks since we started using the vaccine passport. This week, you also ran out of time to just use your vaccination record as well. As of this week, you had to have that vaccine QR code available to show people if you were going to do things like dine indoors at a restaurant or go to the gym or things like that. 
So there's a new poll out from Insights West this morning that asked people the question, well, how often have you had to use it? How much have you had to show it? Joining us now is Steve Mossett, president at Insights West. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. I find this so interesting because I've probably only had to use it a couple of times, but I'm sure there are far more social people than me out there who have to use it quite a bit. Well, you're not uh, you're not alone. About 40% of BC residents have not used the card at this point, and 60% have. And the folks that tend to be out there using it, maybe no surprises, uh, more so the 18 to 34-year-old group, uh, males and those with higher incomes. So that's sort of a profile of who's using the card at this point. But the surprising number that came out of the poll, I'm sure you saw it, is the high percentage of residents, so 33% of us, have been to an establishment that should have asked for a proof of vaccination but failed to do so. And of, of this group, this third of BC residents, uh, about half have experienced this multiple times. Ooh, that's not a good sign. That would mean that there's a l- real lack of enforcement out there. It, it appears so, and even myself. I know I, I've had three instances where I haven't been asked. And I thought I was just, you know, maybe an anomaly, but a third is, is quite a high number, and that's uh, concerning. Yeah, did you, did, like, do people say something? Did you feel like you should say something? Uh, I did. I, I did ask, and one place that they're going to do it next week, they weren't quite prepped and ready staffing-wise to do it, even though, you know, we've had a few weeks to get ready for it. And the other simply forgot and asked me at the end of, uh, end of my service appointment and said, oh, we forgot to ask you coming in the door. So uh, that's just my own experience. But, you know, we've got a third of residents who say that it's happened, and it's happened multiple times. And that number is a lot higher than I would have expected. I haven't seen a lot of uh, uh, media stories on people uh, not being asked or social media posts as well. Yeah, you're right. That is a really interesting part of this. I mean, like I said, I've been less than a handful of times. One time they didn't ask for my driver's license, you know, to verify the identity. I had to say to them, don't you want to see my driver's license to know that that's actually my QR code. So it sounds like there's a, a lot of room here. Does that concern people? Like, what did you ask them about that? Well, it did. And what we asked people is, what are you prepared to do about it? So when you, this does happen and businesses don't comply, uh, here's a list of things. What are you likely to do? And 60% said they would do something. And, and those things include, I'm not going to go to that place of business in the future. So 30% say that. Uh, we've got 24% who say that they will question or confront the manager or owner of the business about it right then and there. There's another uh, one-fifth who say that they'll tell their family friends, uh, and then smaller percentage that say they'll give them a chance, uh, and then there's few that say that they would actually report them. About 13% say, I'm going to report them to the authorities, and 6% would post on social media. So it's, it's at their own peril, these businesses who don't comply, that there's a long laundry list of activities that consumers are willing to engage in that are going to damage the reputation of the business in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's the other interesting thing about this, is that these companies may think that it's not a big deal, but it sounds like the customers who care about this will remember, and according to your survey, there's a lot of people who support this idea. Well, think about it. 22% are going to tell their family and friends, so they're probably going to tell multiple people. So it's the same as any good or positive or negative experience at a place of business where family and friends get told, and that's how reputations get built or destroyed. Uh, what's what are people's what's their comfort level at right now because of the vaccine card? Well, the support levels for the vaccine card are exactly the same as what they were in mid-August. So when the concept was first announced, it was uh, close to eighty percent. It's still close to eighty percent. So we haven't seen any movement. I may be a bit surprised at that because I thought that the twenty percent who are opposed might warm up to the idea, but it seems like people are firmly entrenched in their opinions on that. But the other stat that jumps out at me is that. 
10% of us have witnessed negative behaviors. So um, rude behaviors or, or difficult, uh, people being difficult to the employees about the requirements. And we're only two weeks in. So I looked at that number initially and thought, well, that's low. But then I thought, no, actually, that's quite a big number, 10%. If you have you know, two-thirds of the, of the population who have used the card and 10%, that's well over a million people in the province who said that they've witnessed some negative behaviors at the place of business during the checking process. Yeah, that is a lot of people that just, we tend to think that because we don't hear about it, everything must be fine. But your survey here, Steve, clearly shows that's not the case. It is. It is a big number. And, you know, you hear a lot of the staff shortages and frontline workers who are bearing the brunt of this. And some of the reasons behind that is the abuse that they're facing throughout the pandemic. And now here with the vaccination card, you know, who wants to be yelled at when you're just checking somebody in a restaurant, for example. Right. So do you think that like what really comes out of this survey that you did here is that businesses should pay attention? They should pay attention because people will talk and they're going to take action if they're not compliant. All right. Thanks very much for your time on that this morning, Steve. Thank you, Simi. Steve Mossip is the president of Insights West. He's done a, a survey on the vaccine passport, how that's going over in B.C., and what he just said there, that is the, one of the most interesting things to come out of this is that if you're a business owner out there, maybe your staff's being a little lax, maybe you told people to don't enforce it too much, don't worry about it. But if there's a lot of people out there who care about you know, being asked for this, they want to feel comfortable in the place that they're going in. And if they don't you know, get asked about the proper procedure, as in showing the QR code and your driver's license to make sure that's you, they are not impressed by that. What was it? 22% said that they would then tell family or friends what happened. That's kind of bad publicity that businesses can't really afford, I think, in this day and age. What has been your experience with the vaccine card? Do you get asked for the QR code and your driver's license every single time you're supposed to? Have you? Has there been some flexibility in that? Have you had to say something or do you think, you know, I don't care if they ask me or not ask me? Let me know, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. But according to the survey, about half of the residents say that they have actually used their vaccine card, but overall support to the card has not changed even since the concept was first introduced. The vast majority, 77% of BC residents support using the BC vaccine card to participate in various activities. So tell us what your experience has been using it. Again, simi at cknw.com.